Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the politics of evangelical Christians. Aren't these people total hypocrites for supporting Donald Trump? Katha Pollitt will comment. Also, there are now more than 20 lawsuits in court challenging Trump's Muslim travel ban. Is that too many? Is the state of Washington case the one that won in the Court of Appeals last week, the only one we really need? David Cole will explain. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU and legal columnist for The Nation. First up, it could become the largest resistance movement to federal policy in more than a century. We're talking not only about people in the streets, but about resistance from the state governments of California, Oregon, and Washington. For that story, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He writes regularly for The Nation. He's the author of several books, including The American Way of Poverty and The House of 20,000 Books. His new book will be published by Nation Books in September. It's called Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, of course, it was the state of Washington that brought down Trump's executive order on immigration, the Muslim travel ban. Washington went to court with the broadest legal challenge, not just on behalf of individuals who were harmed. Washington argued that the entire state would be irreparably harmed by Trump's Muslim ban. That's the argument that the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit accepted. Now it looks like Trump is giving up on that broad and sweeping approach, and he's going to try something narrower. But the state of Washington lawsuit is is not the beginning of the story here of West Coast resistance to Trump. In recent years, as you point out in your cover story for The Nation magazine, all the West Coast states have passed major progressive legislation. Yeah, I think what's happened in California, Oregon, and Washington is that over the course of the last maybe five to ten years, a really durable social democratic culture has begun to take root. 
And one, one of the things this means is that legislation is now being passed that 10 or 15 years ago would have been inconceivable in California. Legislation protecting undocumented immigrants, legislation doing significant criminal justice reforms, legislation dramatically expanding access to health care, and legislation that pushes California and by extension the entire West Coast towards being world leaders in environmental policy and climate change policy. And all of these things are under systemic attack now from the government coming out of Washington, D.C. And so what I was doing in my article was saying, well, look, you've essentially got two different cultures here. You've got the federal culture, which is going to be pushing some of the most reactionary politics that we've seen maybe in 100 years. And then you've got these states which, for various reasons, are seeing a sort of political renaissance, and they're absolutely flourishing. And their leadership, whether it's at the city level, whether it's at the state level, or whether it's people on the streets and organizations of citizens and residents coming together, that West Coast culture is just not going to sit and sit silently as all of the reforms of the Great Society and all of the reforms of the New Deal and all of the reforms of the Progressive Era are systematically attacked by Trump. Well, let's talk about the the people in the streets that... The two weeks after Trump took the oath of office, the popular protests in all of the big cities on the West Coast were, I, I think you have to call them amazing. Well, they were. And I mean, there were, there were protests all over the world. So this was not something unique to the West Coast. But right. the scale of the demonstrations, especially in Los Angeles, were just of an order of magnitude bigger than anywhere else. So when you look at Los Angeles, depending on which numbers you believe, somewhere between half a million and three quarters of a million people in the city of Los Angeles were on the streets, which means that more than one in 10 residents joined the Women's March. When you look at California as a whole, again, depending on the numbers, the most conservative numbers, well over a million people in California were demonstrating on January 21st, which means one in 30 residents was taking part in organized political protest. And we've seen this Day in and day out, we've seen the protests at the airports around the immigration and refugee ban. We've seen environmental protests. We've seen scientists organizing to protest the um, clampdown on the EPA and on independent science. At every single level, you're seeing a sort of political awakening. And what that means is it gives cover for political leaders, people like Kevin DeLeon, the Senate pro tem here in California, or Governor Jay Inslee up in Washington, or Governor Brown here in California. It gives them political cover to push for a more progressive, more inclusive agenda and to sort of say to the government, all right, you want to take on our sanctuary cities? Bring it on. You want to take on our environmental regulations? Bring it on. You want to try and dismantle our healthcare expansions? Bring it on. And the reason they can say that is they know that their publics are behind them. They know that not by narrow margins, but by overwhelming margins, the citizenry and the residents in California, in Oregon and Washington are rejecting this bigoted anti-scientific agenda that's coming out of D.C. And that gives them cover for action. California, Oregon and Washington, how much of the American population are we talking about? How much of the American economy well, we're talking about somewhere in the region of one-sixth of the American population and somewhere in the region of one-fifth of the American economy. And to put it in perspective, California by itself, if it were a country, would be the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world. California, Oregon, and Washington as a region, if they were to function as an independent country, would be probably the fourth or fifth biggest economy in the world. So it's got vast economic clout. Each of those states 
are what's called donor states. They send far more money to the federal government than they get back in government services and government benefits and so on. Now, obviously, it's very, very difficult to withhold federal taxes. But the fact that all of these states are wealthy donor states and the fact that all of their populations have shown time and again in recent years a willingness to defend environmental regulations, a willingness to defend healthcare access, a willingness to push for investments in public transport and clean air and clean energy. All of this means there's vast economic muscle in play here. And economic muscle can be used very effectively over the next years to back up political muscle. I know you went to the California State Capitol in Sacramento and talked to the leaders of the legislature in, in the last uh, week or two. What did they tell you? I've been in and out of the Capitol frequently in the last few months because it's an absolutely fasc- fascinating place to be at the moment because where most of the country is going in a more conservative direction, California is having this progressive awakening. So you have legislation being pushed, especially in the aftermath of Trump's election, specifically designed to protect the undocumented and to, to the maximum extent possible, enable non-cooperation with ICE, with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. You have legislation being pushed to try and slow down the building of a border wall on California's lands. You have environmental legislation being pushed to try and preserve California's clean air, clean energy, and carbon dioxide reduction mandates. And you have this vast push not to contract healthcare, but to expand healthcare. And so what they're saying is they're saying that they're ready for a fight. And when you talk to Kevin DeLeon in the Senate, when you talk to Anthony Rendon in the House, when you talk to other leadership personnel, they're essentially gearing up for one legal battle after another with the Trump administration. We recently had the confirmation hearings for Xavier Becerra, the new attorney general. And what struck me was there were some questions that are more traditional questions for an incoming attorney general. How are you going to protect people from crime? How are you going to empower the police to go after criminals and so on? But the vast majority of the questions were actually about how are you going to defend California against the predations of Trump's administration? Trump has threatened to cut off federal funding to Los Angeles, San Francisco, all the cities that have... uh, pledged to be sanctuary cities, and and even the states, if they continue to declare themselves sanctuaries for undocumented immigrants, how would that work? What did you learn in in Mm -hmm. Sacramento and and other places about how cities and states are preparing? What I learned is that a lot of what Trump's doing here is bluster and that it doesn't withstand any kind of legal scrutiny. So Trump can rant and tweet all he wants about defunding cities. But there's an abundance of court precedent that says you can't defund people or cities or states randomly. You can't, for example, say, because we don't like sanctuary cities, we're going to withhold Social Security payments to Californians, or we're going to withhold Medicaid funding. You have to target the withheld money to relevant issues. So it's entirely possible the Trump administration could create a legal argument to, for example, withhold a percentage of the state's health care grants that go to cover the undocumented, or they could withhold some of the education dollars that go towards teaching undocumented children. Though even that would be extremely difficult because when California, in a more conservative period in the early 1990s, passed, I think it was Prop 187, that did mandate withholding public services from children of the undocumented. The court said that was unconstitutional. They said you can't stop a kid from getting an education 
because of their status. So at every level, there's court precedent saying, A, you can't defund certain programs, and B, if you are going to defund those programs, it has to be extremely narrowly interpreted, and it has to be directly relevant to the issue that the state or the city is in contention with with the federal government. But the other point is, the federal government doesn't actually give that much money to the cities. It gives a lot of money to the state in the form of things like, as I said, Medi-Cal payments. But to the cities, most education money is raised locally. Most transportation money is raised locally. Most law enforcement money is raised locally. And those are the three big issues that any federal government in conflict with a city has to sort of hold against them. But in every instance, what you find is mayors saying, look, we would lose maybe 5 or 6% of our money in this area, but it's a price worth paying to uphold our values and a price worth paying to protect our residents. And that doesn't matter if you're talking about the administration in San Diego in the south or in Seattle in the north or in San Francisco and L.A. in between and Portland in between. All of the big city administrations told me and they've told other people and they've said so in public protest contexts that they are willing to stand up and fight the federal government on this because so much is at stake. We've talked mostly about immigration, which is, of course, the most urgent uh, issue. But you mentioned briefly that Trump is also going to be challenging, especially the state of California, on its climate change regulations, on its health care funding. What are the plans for resisting on those fronts? Well, on the environmental fronts, almost all of the big cities in America, and again, not just on the West Coast, but throughout the country, are already attending conferences like the C40 conference in Mexico City, which was held after the election and before the inauguration, where cities reaffirmed their commitment to clean energy, to public transport in investments, to denser urban construction so that people are commuting less far and so on. And what I've heard from one city administrator after another is, look, the cities can do this. It helps to have federal government support. It helps to have a president who is using his presidential pulpit to promote good science instead of bad science. But if the White House goes AWOL on this, the cities and the big states like California can still go it themselves. They can still promote changes that lead to carbon dioxide reductions. And what I was actually told by the Portland mayor is that if 90 of America's biggest cities follow the lead that Portland's taken on things like transit investments and things like green energy construction codes, that they could get most of the way towards America meeting its Paris Agreement mandates, even without help from the federal government. Wow. So that, you know, on the environmental front, I think what we're looking at is the West Coast, California in particular, but the West Coast as a whole, essentially usurping the role of the federal government. And people all over the world, scientists, engineers, urban designers, people all over the world are going to look not to Washington, D.C. and the federal government over the next four or eight years, but they're going to look instead to the state governments on the West Coast and to the cities on the West Coast. On health care, I think it's a work in progress. I think everyone's trying to work out exactly how fast and how far the Affordable Care Act is going to be dismantled, whether or not Medicaid is going to be turned into a block grant, which certainly has been under discussion. And so there's more uncertainty. But certainly what some of the people I talked to for this article told me was, look, politically, it's impossible to go back. California, Oregon, and Washington expanded their health systems so much over the last few years and improved the well-being and the health and the lives of so many millions of the residents that politically they could not stand idly by and watch as those millions of people became uninsured again 
and as people with pre-existing conditions ended up being uninsurable and all the things that used to happen before the ACA. And so people are starting to think creatively. And one of the things that you hear sort of being discussed is this idea that maybe you could have a tri-state compact, that that huge political and economic powerhouse of California, Oregon, and Washington might want to go its own way on healthcare and might want to look for a way to create a universal healthcare system within those three states. And then people start thinking, well, you know, could you have buy-in? Could New York, for example, on the East Coast say, this sounds good to us, can we buy in? And the answer is yes, that you could end up with liberal states essentially creating a more inclusive, more comprehensive parallel health structure to the shriveled health structure that the federal government seems to be promoting. This could become the largest coordinated regional resistance movement to federal policy since the Civil War. Sasha Abramsky, he wrote the cover story for The Nation this week, The West Coast Fights Back Against Trump. Read it at thenation.com. Sasha, thanks for talking with us today. Anytime. Thanks so much. Now it's time to talk about the Christian right and Donald Trump. And for that, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Seems to me there's virtually nothing Christian about Donald Trump. He doesn't care about the poor. He's a liar and a libertine. Nevertheless, something like 81% of white evangelical Christians voted for him. So isn't this the biggest case of hypocrisy you've ever seen? No, John. You're being a little naive here. God can use anyone for his purposes. I see. Okay, let me give you an example. Let's say there was a charismatic presidential candidate, and he supported everything you believe in single-payer health care, curbs on banks and finance, let's bring back unions, more workers' rights, and he's going to put people on the Supreme Court that will guarantee civil rights, voting rights, LGBTQ rights, and women's rights for the next 40 years. Okay, so that's him. Now, unfortunately, this candidate is kind of a dick. Uh, (laughs) he, He tells racist and sexist jokes. He has a turbulent private life. He used to be a Republican. He's a little bit of a crook with his personal finances. And he has been shown over many years that he's not your idea of an ethical person. Although, you know, for campaign purposes, he'll he'll try to fake it from time to time. Now, okay, so that's him. Would you withhold your vote and hand the White House to his opponent who's some flaming reactionary? Or would you support him and start making America Sweden? <laughs> I see what you mean, but but what about blessed are the meek? Isn't that what Jesus taught? And and who's the least meek person in the world today? Have you ever read a history of the papacy? There aren't too many meek popes. Calvin wasn't meek. Wesley was. I mean, to get anywhere in religion, as in any other field, it doesn't help you to be meek. The idea is that the strong, powerful leader helps the meek people. Jesus wasn't meek, you know. Jesus wasn't meek at all. He threw the moneylenders out of the temple. Now, of course, Donald Trump wants to put them back in there. But you you see my point. I see your point. So you think there was some kind of a a gamble made by the evangelicals. And now that they have helped make Trump president, I guess it's payback time. Well, yeah, I I think that we 
think of Christian conservatives as much more different than ourselves than they really are. I think they're able to say, look, I don't like this guy personally. I don't like the way he talks about women. I don't like that he's not really a family man. Um, and his business dealings are a little shady. But you know the Supreme Court is really important. And I'm going to put my personal you know, difficulties with him aside. And I'm going to do the right thing for our movement. This is politics. That's what everybody does. I use the example, for example, of Ted Kennedy. You know, Ted Kennedy let a woman drown. And yet, you know, biggest friend feminism had in the Senate. I thought he jumped in and tried to save her, but didn't succeed. Well, let's not get into that. Okay. (laughs) The fact is, Ted Kennedy was, uh, he was a flagrant womanizer. He was an alcoholic. He cheated in college. All kinds of stuff. He was not anyone's idea, any liberal's idea of a personally honorable, decent, great guy. But they loved him because he was on their side. So what exactly is the payback that evangelical Christians are are looking for right now? Oh, my God, they've already gotten it. They got Mike Pence as the vice president. Mike Pence is a fanatical opponent of Planned Parenthood. He tried to shut down the government over Planned Parenthood when he was in Congress. And how does he describe himself? Okay, he calls himself a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. Yeah, I guess that counts as payback. Yeah, so that's payback. He's going to do everything they want. They, they look at the people that are have either been confirmed or will be probably be confirmed in the cabinet. They're all right-wing Christians, from Ben Carson to Betsy DeVos to, of course, Tom Price for um, HHS. Um, they put in uh, this in the uh, health care seat on the Domestic Policy Council, this woman Katie Talento who believes that birth control causes cancer and infertility. She calls it chemical poison. Um, And then, okay, more payback. At the National Prayer Breakfast, Trump vowed to totally destroy, quote-unquote, the 1954 Johnson Amendment. And that's the amendment which bars tax-exempt organizations, including churches, from campaigning for political candidates. So he wants to get rid of that. Well, that's that's a big payback. But but what about the time when, uh, during the campaign, when Trump said his favorite book was the Bible, but he couldn't name his favorite verse? One of, one of my all-time favorite Trump quotes. Asked what his favorite verse in the Bible was, he answered, quote, I don't want to get into specifics. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, I, I read that one, one evangelical Christian described him as a baby Christian. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We have focused on the appointments that he has made. Evangelical Christians, of course, have a big legislative agenda. And what's at the top? One thing at the top is defunding Planned Parenthood. Yeah. And getting rid of the Affordable Care Act, which is provision that uh, lets get birth control with no copay. But the big thing for them is the Supreme Court. You know, right now we're down one member of the Supreme Court. And so if Neil Gorsuch, who's a, I think it's safe to say he's pretty sympathetic to the anti-choice agenda, if they get him on, they'll still need one more because there'll still be the five votes to preserve Roe v. Wade. But three of the justices are, um, I don't know how to say this in like a really nice, polite way, but they're no longer young. And... Um, it's very li- actuarially likely that in the next four years, one of them will, will retire or 
you know, be taken out feet first. And then Donald Trump will get to nominate that fifth justice. And this will be very, very terrible for our point of view and very wonderful from the Christian conservative point of view. Do you really think that if they get a Supreme Court majority, that majority will repeal Roe v. Wade? Well, you know, there are people who say, oh, they'll never do that because it would be such a political disaster for the Republicans. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking here. But I think that uh, things have gone way beyond that kind of calculation. I think the the Tea Party, which is also very anti-choice, and the Christian conservatives between them control the Republican Party, and they are very, very powerful. And I think that it would be very, very likely that they did overturn Roe v. Wade. I mean, it'll take a few years because it has to get those two justices in place and it has to bring it, there has to be a case that they accept that comes before them. But, you know, even if they leave Roe v. Wade there as the sort of headline that many people will not read beyond, they could still undermine abortion completely by simply reinterpreting Roe. They could say, well, you know, we've, the science has come so far and now it's okay to make abortion uh, illegal after 20 weeks or 18 weeks or whatever. They could say that the new, very, very wild, weird laws that are being passed in the red states are okay. Let's take a look at some of those. Abortion politics, of course, right now is taking place mostly in the states, as you say, the red states, where the Christian right uh, has a lot of power. Kentucky, for example, passed a bill that requires doctors providing abortions to first perform an ultrasound of the fetus and show the image to the patient, even if she objects. Yes, and there uh, in Texas, there's a guy, state representative, who wants to make abortion a felony and to have it punished like murder for both women and providers. Um, and here's what he said, this uh, state rep, uh, Tony Tinderholt, told the Texas Observer, right now, they don't make it important to be personally responsible because they know that they have a backup of, oh, I can just go get an abortion. Of course, is there a punishment for the man involved? No, there never is. So a lot of laws are coming down the pike. And the reason they're coming down the pike is precisely to throw that spaghetti at the wall of the Supreme Court and hope one strand will provide the basis for overturning Roe v. Wade. But, you know, I just wanted to say one thing, which is the federal government is actually uh, involved in a lot of anti-abortion stuff as well. For example, people uh, in the federal government not being able to buy insurance that covers abortion, people in the military not being able to get abortions um, in military hospitals, even if they pay for it themselves. Um, there's, and there's going to be a lot more of that, too. It's really reached beyond, you know, I think it used to be that a lot of people thought, well, you know, all this stuff is happening in places like North Dakota. But actually, it's it's happening all over now. Don't you think Trump himself has probably paid for a few abortions? Well, yes, yes I do. Actually, I wouldn't be at all surprised. See, his image as a libertine actually worked in his favor. It may have made it a little hard for at first for some conservative Christians to vote for him. But it reassured a lot of other people that he didn't really mean it mm. when he said that, you know, he was a baby Christian and he was going to said, I'm, I'm anti-choice now. And he didn't use those words, but that's what he, he said. It was hard for people to think, oh, a guy like this would actually restrict abortion. There's one part of the evangelical Christian agenda that Trump has not endorsed, and that is their attacks on LGBT 
Q rights. In fact, he announced he was not revoking Obama's executive order. That's the one saying federal contractors cannot discriminate against LGBTQ people. But I suppose you're going to say they will find a way around that. And this is where the Supreme Court will be so important, is if you expand the rights of religious people to refuse to do anything they don't want to do, then, uh, which is basically the way things seem to be going, um, they don't have to dispense birth control if they're a pharmacy, or they don't have to uh, participate in abortion providing if they work in a if they work for an abortion clinic. You know, uh, Bush tried that on a number of years ago, et cetera, et cetera. Then uh, you're going. You can expand that to you don't have to hire. You don't have to hire a, a gay person or a woman who's had an abortion, or a single mother, um, or a divorced person. I mean, it can really go quite far. So I think that the Christian the Christians did very well for themselves in this election. My last question for you. Jesus said, the last shall be first. Where does that leave Donald Trump? Well, he's first, so maybe he'll be last someday. We can always hope. <laughs> Katha Pollitt, read her at thenation.com. Katha, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. We're seeing more challenges to Trump and Trumpism in court. Lots of challenges making different arguments. To sort them out, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent. He's the author most recently of the book, Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. And most important, he's National Legal Director of the ACLU. David Cole, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, the biggest case right now is the uh, one filed by the state of Washington, joined by my home state of Minnesota, that the Ninth Circuit unanimously refused to reinstate Trump's uh, travel ban. The New York Times calls it a stinging judicial rebuke to the president. Uh, tell us about this case and how it's different from the ACLU cases. Well, it's not really very different from the ACLU cases. There have been about uh, two dozen cases filed around the country challenging the executive order, essentially maintaining uh, in, in some some very some different claims in some different cases. But the basic claim is that uh, this is a violation of the Establishment Clause, that because Trump singled out Muslims, sought to impose, an, in effect, a Muslim ban, uh, expressly stated that he was um, intentionally uh, seeking to favor Christian refugees over Muslim refugees, which is what he said on the day the order was issued on Christian Broadcast News, uh, that's a violation of the Establishment Clause. And so we have sued, the, that is the ACLU has sued on behalf of immigrants who have been detained when they got to the United States and were blocked from coming into the country. We have also sued on behalf of refugee organizations, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which is the oldest refugee assistance organization in the country. We've sued on behalf of U.S. citizens here who have relatives abroad. The state of Washington, in this case, sued on behalf of itself, 
the state and its citizens, uh, in, including its universities, which have students uh, who are affected by this. If they go home, they can't come back, then they can't pay their tuition. The cases vary principally in who brings the cases, but the basic bottom line claim is the president acted contrary to the Establishment Clause in, uh, in this, in this uh, executive order. And is it better to have a state or in this case, two states as uh, the plaintiffs trying to stop Trump than an organization like the ACLU and its its partners? I don't know. I mean, I think it, in some in some respects, it gives it a kind of legitimacy that an actual, you know, a, another arm of government is challenging it, not just uh, a group of citizens. But um, as long as the plaintiff has standing, as long as they can, can have sufficient injury to get into court, you know, what matters really is the all the work that has been done outside of the court to develop the really extraordinarily wide critique of the order uh, from, you know, the citizenry, from religious institutions, from national security officials, from the business community, from the academy. Um, That, to me, is what's critical in uh, sort of advancing the ball here, in standing up to President Trump, and in Uh, maximizing the chances of success in the courts. You've said there's almost two dozen of these cases before the courts now, which the ACLU has brought several. Is that too many? It seems like two two dozen is an awful lot of cases. Well, this was was an order that came out of Washington but was implemented at every border stop, at every airport. And so you had people in airports who we needed to get in. And so in some instances, you had no choice. I mean, you, the way to get them in was to file a lawsuit. And we did get people in by filing lawsuits. And we stopped people from being sent back by filing lawsuits. And in fact, in one of our lawsuits in Southern California, the court ordered that the government return somebody who they had sent back by filing that lawsuit. So, no, I think it's, it's, it's a response to the breadth of the, the, the order, which has effects that are localized in very many um, places. And then it's sort of a, a crapshoot as to which case is going to advance most quickly and which case will ultimately get to the Supreme Court. If you think back to the, the marriage equality uh, issue, you know, before the Supreme Court decision in Obergefell, there were something like 70 cases on all the same time in the courts recognizing uh, the right of, of, of same-sex couples to marry. And it's also significant that many judges have issued injunctions against enforcement of Trump's executive order. No, it's, it's remarkable. Ordinarily, the courts are very deferential to the political branches on immigration matters. And in this instance, virtually every request for an, uh, an injunction or a stay has been granted, with one exception where in Massachusetts where a stay was granted uh, and then it wasn't continued. A subsequent judge refused to continue it. But by that time, there were other stays in effect that made it not, that didn't really matter, that it wasn't uh, continued. So every other judge, including this unanimous decision from the Ninth Circuit, uh, has ruled against the president. Well, that's a stinging rebuke to the president, I would say. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't think the president helped himself by uh, referring to the judge in this case, in the district court, as a so-called judge. You know, that does not play well with the judiciary when you... The president of the United States questions the legitimacy of the the people who are doing their jobs. So 
they're going to do their jobs. And, and, and that, I think, is important because we need checks on this president, that's for sure. We've talked about the, the judges and, their, and the uh, attorneys up to this point, but as I recall, there were also hundreds of thousands of people went out to airports uh, uh, that Saturday. What role did they play in all this? I think they played an, uh, an incredible role. I mean, I, I, I'm just um, so encouraged by the people who spontaneously went out to airports on a Saturday. You know, it's the last place I'd want to be uh, voluntarily is an airport. It's a soul-crushing environment, and yet Tens of thousands of Americans in, in, in cities across the country went out voluntarily and spent their time at airports standing up, not for their own rights, but for the rights of foreign nationals. That's, that says a lot about uh, people's concern about Trump and about the, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the day, our commitment as a citizenry to the fundamental rights and values that the president is challenging. Jeff Sessions is our new Attorney General. What is the ACLU's position on Jeff Sessions at this point? Well, we issued a statement uh, on on Twitter, I believe, and social media saying uh, Jeff Sessions is now the Attorney General. If he violates the Constitution, we'll sue. We focused almost exclusively, the ACLU focused very intensely for the last two weeks on the executive order on, on immigration. Uh, the Muslim ban, uh, we call it, but I believe Trump is doing a lot of other things. Is is this distracting us from more important issues? What else is on the ACLU's agenda? Much of what he has done other than nominate is to, in terms of his executors, is to urge a department to study whether to reopen the Standing Rock thing or task force to study crime in the streets. or And you can't enjoin those. Or, or the, the executive that says we should increase our efforts to deport people. Well, it's not, it's not unconstitutional to seek to increase our efforts to deport people. But if you do it in unconstitutional ways, then you run into trouble. And, we, and as we have said from the beginning, we'll see you in court. But, but that hasn't yet um, manifested in actual implementation yet. It's just a kind of, he's put on the on paper that this is what he intends to do. Once he intends to do it, and once constitutional violations arise, we'll be, uh, uh, we'll be there to, to, to challenge them. There was an op-ed in the LA Times a couple of days ago that argued the ACLU and the state attorney generals have to be careful about which lawsuits they file because when the Republicans get a majority on the Supreme Court, or maybe we should say if the Republicans get a majority on the Supreme Court, we could lose the big ones and establish precedents that far outlast Trump. These guys argue the cases the ACLU and the state attorney generals choose not to bring may be among their most important achievements because courts can't rule on what's not before them. I know you're familiar with this argument. No, I think you have to be strategic about what you can win and what the risks of losing are. Absolutely. And you, and you don't. Sometimes the job of a lawyer is to convince people not to file suit because it's too early to file suit. It's, the, the, the claim is not going to prevail. You're going to get a setback that will, uh, that will harm the cause rather than advance the cause. And you have to, in each instance, you have to think about, you know, what is the likelihood that that's going to happen? There are also there are instances where you don't have much choice. I mean, when you've got somebody stuck at the airport 
uh, you think you have a pretty good claim that he should be able to get in, you sue. If you've got somebody locked up at Guantanamo, you think they should have a right to habeas corpus, you sue. Even if it's a, the, the odds are long against you, you sue. But then you don't just stop there. If the odds are long against you, you don't just sue and hope that you may, if you make a good argument, you'll win. You have to then engage in the work outside the courts uh, in multiple forums to get sufficient support to increase the chances that you will in the end, succeed, and and you see that in these in these immigration cases, the the, uh, the amicus briefs and the support that, uh, that 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 has come from national security experts, from Republicans as well as Democrats, from the business community, the, the, basically the entire Silicon Valley tech uh, uh, industry, from the universities across the board, from religious. Uh, institutions. Uh, I mean, it's hard to find someone who supports it who's outside of the White House. David Cole, just on a, on a personal note here, you became the ACLU's national legal director right after Trump was elected and just before he took office. So I guess you 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 took the job specifically to fight Trump. Well. <laughs> As it happens, that, that is my uh, job uh, definition at this point. But no, I didn't take the job to fight Trump. I took the job before uh, the election uh, when everybody, including myself and including the ACLU, thought that Hillary Clinton was likely to win the election, that we would likely have a, Demo- uh, a liberal majority Supreme Court for the first time in since 1972, uh, and that would be a tremendous opportunity to sort of think about how constitutional law might evolve with a liberal Supreme Court. Well, all the preparation, all the memos for that have been uh, put in the recycling bin, and you know we're now fighting a very different battle. But it's, uh, but I think it's a tremendous privilege. You know, I mean, I you know I think many people across the country are are deeply concerned about President Trump and, and want to act. You know, my job is to respond to Trump every day I wake up and think, how can I defend liberty in the age of Trump? What greater job could there be? David Cole, thanks for doing that job, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books, and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.